0: Father, we give you thanks for this day. We thank you for both the rains we've had and the way that you refresh and re- replenish the earth. And we thank you for the beauty of the sunshine and uh, the blossoming of this time of year. And we pray that we would find refreshment and nourishment in uh, the rains that come through your word uh, that bless us. And we Pray that we would grow and mature. We pray we'd make good progress this evening uh, in our study, and we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, first, did everyone um, get the email that I sent out? uh, Or let me put it the other way. Is there anybody who's on who didn't get the document I sent out uh, late this afternoon? Um, If there is, I'll... uh, use that screen when we come to it. I can just put it on the screen. Is there anybody needs that? I'm not seeing anybody, but uh, remind me to say that again when we get to it, so in case somebody comes on late. All right, we're on Providence. Uh, as I said, I think one of the most wonderful chapters in the whole of the Confession is um, And we've considered the first couple of points uh, that they've made, and I think we're on section four. So here we have mentioned again the great, uh, what shall we call it, the trinity of God's attributes that are so magnificently present in his providence. Power, wisdom, and goodness. Almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness. Uh, This is the constant testimony as we see God uh, preserving and governing the universe. And now they're making the point that that extends even to the first fall and all other sins of men and angels. So everything, that sinful thing that happens is under God's providence and governance. Um, And yet they... And they make it uh, more forceful in that um, it isn't, as they put it, a bare permission that such things should happen. But that r- rather they're not only permitted, uh, but there is a bounding, an ordering, a governing of them, and a manifold t- dispensation uh, for his only ends. So that Whatever purposes the actors have, God's purpose prevails over it all, and they um, and, and such that although God has in His providence appointed these things, um, yet the sinfulness of them proceed only from the creature and not from God, who, being most holy and righteous, neither can be nor Uh, neither is nor can be the author uh, and or approver of sin. Uh, We've already talked about that term author and uh, uh, the qualification I make that uh, that term has different senses but here clearly uh, what's in view is that God is not the doer of sin and he doesn't approve of it. He's the doer of good things and he is uh, approving uh, 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 the good that he intends to come out of it. So, not a bare permission. God permits the evildoer to act. He doesn't force him, as we're going to uh, talk about later when we get to free will. Uh, the will, in fact, can't be forced. Uh, but it's permission that fulfills God's purposes. Uh, this is in a manifold dispensation uh, we don't talk this way much anymore. Uh, uh, dispensation just means an administration, a way of accomplishing things. And manifold just means for many and various uh, purposes. Um, so we have a, a manifold, a, a, a varied administration in providence, all fulfilling God's ends. Um, And, of course, the sinfulness can only come from the creature because a sinful action can only come from a sinful intention. Intention is what constitutes its uh, moral character. Uh, God's intention in the matter is not and could not be sinful. Um, And you see, this is precisely the way Joseph... interprets God's providence in uh, Genesis 50 at verse 20. Uh, He looks at his brothers. um, He knows that they were sinful agents in the behavior they had toward him, and he states it plainly. You meant this for evil. But there was another actor, an unseen actor, an actor they weren't recognizing, and that was God. And God meant it for good. Uh, So in the very... Precise ordering of the free, but sinful actions of his brothers, God through a abounding, not a bare permission, but ordering and contriving and so on, to bring out of it great good. All right, so that's the fourth point about providence. Anybody a question or comment um, at? Uh, um, all right, I'm not seeing anybody. Let's go on to five. The most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oft, oft times leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations. Um, the, uh, this is a very, very helpful section of the Confession of Faith. Uh, it's a precious pastoral paragraph uh, that adorn the confessions th- throughout so uh, God leaves his own to temptation and corruption. Uh, but again, it's not a bare permission, but it's a, uh, a in a manifold dispensation. It's an ordering to bring good out of it. And I, I th- have found it enormously helpful myself to break this out as a list and use it when I think about some difficulty that I've been left to by the Lord. Um, His purposes. uh, He leaves them to manifold temptations, that is, in outward circumstance that can become the occasion for their sin, and to the corruption of their own hearts, that is, the in inward circumstances uh, that um, uh, the the vestigial remains of that sinful nature uh, stirred up. So it's good to think in terms of uh, was this something that was primarily perhaps because I let myself get in a bad situation? Or was it that I wasn't attending carefully enough to trying to put, to die to sin daily and come alive to sin Um, and so that's what he leaves us to and of course it's typically a combination of both but what is it that God might be doing well you have this lovely list Um, it's to chastise for former sins Um, so that uh, some sinful thing it may and it's most likely to be a, 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 a natural fruit of my sins, and sin tends to lead to misery. But God often uh, wonderfully works so that I don't face the consequences of something foolish or disobedient. But sometimes he leads me into that, and it can be to to work, a fatherly chastisement, uh, to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption. That I can become convinced again, yes, oh my goodness, there is a part of me that would jump right back into sin if, if I weren't restrained. Uh, corruption or deceitfulness of the heart. That I've let myself w- wander being deceived by sin to think of it other than it really is. Another lovely purpose, that we may be humbled. Um And in that humbling, then to be raised up to to a more close and constant dependence for our support on Christ. Uh, These are precious gifts that come out of our own sinfulness. It's a remarkable uh, thing that God does. Uh, And to make us more watchful against all future occasions of sin. And for other sundry, just, and holy ends. I love that thing. Uh, They ran out of energy for the subject at that point. (laughs) Um, But as I say, if you find yourself in such a circumstance, it's wonderful to have this as a diagnostic tool to think through what good may come of it and have your uh, mind rest not in the sin you've committed. Uh, You properly feel some guilt and shame, but that's not where your mind rests. Your mind rests because that's a dangerous place for it. Your mind rests in the good and holy purposes that God has, in having brought a son or daughter into such a providence, and and that's how we're raised up out of it. Um, so I think that that's a very uh, important section. Um, I'll pause there. Anyone a question or comment about that? All right, then we press on to 6. So now uh, we have a description of God's providence with respect to uh, those who he uh, intends to leave permanently in their sinfulness. And this is a grim paragraph. Um, As for those wicked and ungodly men, whom God as a righteous judge. Note, not as creator, but a righteous judge. Uh, The the person who perishes, perishes because the righteous judge of heaven and earth has decided to leave them in their um, sinful condition that is worthy of punishment. Um, uh, For former sins doth blind and harden From them he not only withholdeth his grace, where they might have been enlightened in their understandings and wrought upon in their hearts, but sometimes also he withdraweth the gifts that they had and and exposed them to such objects as their corruption makes occasions for sin, Uh, and withal gives them over to their own lusts, the temptations of the world and the power of Satan. Whereby, and this is just such a tragic sentence, whereby it comes to pass that they harden themselves even under those means which God useth to soften others. Do you, do you see that, that circumstance that we had? The person who's in Christ can say, when I feel my heart rebelling or find myself in tempting circumstances, God has some good purpose that he's going to work out of it, and I can be confident of that and look to it. But here, the the tragic thing is that those self-same kinds of things, instead of doing good for the unbeliever, actually he hardens himself further in his disobedience. This is manifestly true scripturally, and yet it is a, a fearful business. The analysis here is penetrating. And the conclusion is devastating. Uh, it's a picture of dr- the dreadful effects of sin. Um, and it's captured in the remarkable saying of the apostle Paul uh, that's um, cited in the scripture uh, proofs in second 2 Corinthians 2:15 to 16. Paul says, "For we." That is, he and his gospel preaching. We are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one we are the savor of death unto death and to the other the savor of life unto life who is sufficient for these things. Well, that's section six. Um, We have one more section, but let me see if anyone has a question or comment or concern about that point. All right, then we have this brief conclusion. It's a precious conclusion. Uh, As the providence of God doth in general reach to all creatures, so after a most special manner it taketh care of his church and disposeth all things to the good thereof. Now, uh, the lead uh, footnote, <laughs> the lead uh, scripture proof on this is 1 Timothy 4.10. And if you're reading Chad's commentary, he makes some comment like, uh, uh, whatever that whatever the apostle was trying to say there fully, uh, it at least shows this much that God cares for the church. And, uh, well, he might have queried that. You remember, we've already talked about it. The text is... Um, well, from 1 Timothy 4.10, uh, for therefore we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the savior of all men, especially of those that believe. And so this text is taken then to, in some ways, say God is especially caring uh, for the church and his providence. If I'm right, this isn't really a footnote for that. Uh, this isn't a proof for that doctrine. Um, And you recall that I said uh, we've discovered uh, within the last couple of decades, uh, maybe even three now, that malista, uh, translated here especially, and in a literary form it typically does, um, but um, in especially epistulatory literature. The term is not used that way, but rather it is uh, a, a reinforcing uh, kind of term uh, it, it's like um, uh, equivalent to that is to say so it would be God is the savior of all men that is to say those who believe it's a precising term that you'd expect because you don't edit typically a letter, you're writing along and you look down and you think oh, maybe that's not going to be clear enough I need to add this to clarify what I was trying to say and this translation makes the verse considerably uh, more lucid. It's very hard to think of what it means otherwise. It's interesting to note now that the ESV Study Bible makes reference to this as an option for interpreting the text. It's the third they mention. They they say it means the Savior of all people, namely those who believe. Um Uh, And then they parenthetically note that it's a different translation of the Greek malista based on extra biblical examples. But in any case, this is certainly a precious truth and fully vindicated in scripture apart from 1 Timothy 4.10, that God's providence works for the good, not only for us as individuals, but for us as a family of believers, uh, that he's working out the glory of his son in the building of his church. And His providence is fully deployed to that great effort. Well, there's the uh, chapter on providence. Um, complete. Give you another chance to, if you have a question, a comment, or a reflection. Yes, please.
1: So, Dave, um, just thinking about um, you know our, our sinfulness, our, our wickedness. And I think for uh, reformed believers, I think we're very um, uh, astute to or attentive to our own wickedness and our own depravity and I think um, some time ago it came to my realization that that I may overly focus on that mm. as far as our sinfulness uh, to the exclusion of considering the power of Satan you know as I think you read in in uh, one of these sections, yes. And um, so it occurred to me that I had not really been, I, I guess, having the mindset of being wary, as Scripture warns us, mm-hmm. uh, to be wary for, you know, the, the devil prowls around looking for someone to de- devour. And I wonder if you found it helpful to um, try to make some distinctions between our own depravity and the influence uh, of, of Satan you know, in the spiritual realm. Yes. Uh, Maybe how to be on guard, how to pray, how to be watchful, uh, how to um, minister to others. So I wonder if you can comment on that.
0: Yeah, that's a a great point. And it's uh, fraught with dangers on both sides. Uh, That's a point that I think Lewis makes in Screwtape Letters that, uh, you, you can think too much about the devil or you can not th- not think enough about him uh and it's you've got to find a middle ground there you think of the old uh well maybe uh, <laughs> anyway uh, there was a great show in my youth uh called laugh in and uh, uh a black comic uh flip uh wilson F- wilson yes <laughs> he he always did this thing of the devil made me do it and of course we've all probably known christians who were so caught up in that that they didn't think there was anything that uh wasn't satan fiddling with them and on the other hand there are christians become almost uh, uh deistic in a sense with respect to satan that he did bad things one time ago but uh, he's not really present in the world um so i think it's a great point I, I I would just say this uh, relatively briefly. I don't think we have now any way to know that it's Satan. We, uh, we only know that he is at work, but we don't have any way of discerning his agency in any given set of circumstances. That was a special gift uh, that had to be given and uh, that... Um, Uh, I think that's been withdrawn from the world now that we have the scriptures uh, complete. So that that gift of discernment we don't have. Um, But I think the point is this, that um, we're to know that there's an invisible world seeking our destruction in order to drive us not to um, peculiar and weird forms of spiritual warfare, but to drive us to faithfulness in the regular use of the means of grace. Because what What is it that arms us to stand against the devil in the evil day? It's the armor of God. And what is the armor of God? It's scripture and faith and... Uh, um, Hope and um, the uh, it, it's just the the regular things that Christians ought to be doing anyway. <laughs> but uh, uh, this, so it's an an additional inducement for us to realize that these are not just th- things that are part of common Christian life, but they're also potently powerful to uh, ward off the darts of the devil and hit to prepare you against his temptations and so on and and uh so i i think that's the point of us ha- knowing about that world but it's also the point that we don't engage that world directly but we engage it by pursuing uh the means of grace that the lord has given us um, but the you, you think of the uh, section on Providence, to to uh, help us to know our own weakness. Well, this is a, a part of knowing our own weakness, that we're under assault from beings that are malevolent. Uh, and uh, But the only way for us to respond to that is through taking up the whole armor of God, being devoted uh, to those means of grace fellowship sermons um, that kind of thing. Does that make sense or help at all? Yes, thank you mm-hmm. All right well we get into some uh, tough work ahead <laughs> we're, we're turning, turning to the fall and sin and punishment and uh, free will. I don't think we're going to get all the way through that tonight although I'd love it if we did um, but Uh, So let's have a go at it. We're going to look at chapter 6. Between chapter 6 and 9, you have uh, a chapter on the covenants, and you have a chapter on the person of Christ. And um, I can see, in a way, um, that arrangement, but it doesn't really make sense to me uh, to have free will appear there then and there as opposed to here, because this is intimately tied to, uh, the fall and sin and punishment. And, um, uh, so that's why we're going to take it up before we get to next time, the covenants and the person of Christ. So chapter six, the fall of man of sin and the punishment thereof. Um, the um, our first parents, uh, the divine say, were s- seduced by the subtlety and temptation of Satan, um, and and they sinned, and uh, that by this peculiar um, command that we had mentioned earlier, not to eat of the tree of good and evil, uh, a command perfectly designed to test their fealty to God just because he's God and he said that they needed to do it not because it was reinforced by the the wonderful coordination between what's good to do and the good that comes to us in the world Um, uh, this their sin God was pleased according to his wise and holy counsel permit having ordered purpose to order it to his own glory now uh, this matter is very simply summarized in, in these two sentences, but this explains everything in the world it, it A failure to grasp this means you are clueless with respect to the world and its dynamic. Um, it is of supreme importance as it provides the lens through which we must interpret the state of the world. Because of our sin, the world of mankind is justly under a curse. And if I don't have that clearly in mind, that this world is now justly under God's curse, and here's how it came to be, I I won't be able to function properly in the world at all. Um. Now notice this, and this goes back to uh, the uh, uh, question we just addressed. Um, the uh, from Tony on Satan's role. Notice they were seduced by the subtlety and temptation of Satan, but Satan was the occasion of their sin, not the cause of it. He didn't cause them to sin. Uh, And you know the difference between an efficient cause and an occasional cause. Uh, There is a kind of causality with an occasion, but it's not efficient. It's not what makes the thing happen. It's only the occasion for it to happen. And you can see it, 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 the the temptation part itself um, uh, can't be the cause of sin because, uh, for example... um, uh, uh, one fellow walks in to a, ru- a, a restaurant and he sees a hundred dollar bill uh, f- sitting on the floor w- where folks had just been sitting at a table and got up to leave, and he picks it up, and puts it in his pocket, steals the money. Whereas another fellow comes in, sees the hundred dollar bill, and runs after the folks, saying, "You you, you lost your money." Both the the precisely the same circumstances were the occasion of one person to a virtuous act and to another person to a sinful act. Uh, and it's crucial for our understanding of our uh, own moral nature that external things don't cause us to sin. Sin flows from the heart. Um, and so uh, the problem is that... Um, Adam and Eve had decided that uh, uh, God's word wasn't enough. Uh, God permitted this, you remember, but it's not a bare permission. It's to order it for his own glory. Um, Chad in his book nicely calls this the first and greatest irony in history, that the subtlety of of this malevolent creature should be the occasion for the display of the depths and riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. I think that's a great point uh, that he raises. Um, uh, That's what, you know, you may know Edwards uh, says somewhere that uh, Satan is one of the most highly developed, intelligent, uh, uh, beautiful of the creatures ever made, and yet he is the greatest blockhead in the universe. And why does he say that? (laughs) The simplest child learns the lesson, if you touch the stove, you're going to get burnt. And they don't just keep touching the stove over and over again. Satan, throughout his entire history, knows that everything he does to oppose God and his kingdom and purposes is going to turn out in favor of God and his kingdom and purposes. And it just shows you how horrible unmitigated malevolence is in that it makes a a brilliantly intelligent creature incapable of knowing the truth and thus ultimately frustrated in everything that he does because he never wins. Um, Well, by this sin they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God and so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of soul and body. Um, It was their original righteousness uh, that made possible their communion with God. Um, And so obviously that was going to be lost uh, uh, immediately they had been warned that on the day they ate of the tree, they would die. Yet physical death doesn't come into the picture until later. Um, but the fact is, if we understand aright, on the day they did this, they did die. They died to God as their blessedness. Having lost that communion was really what it meant to be alive, not simply to be physically animate. Uh, now the divines are right I think to say holy defiled but we need to be clear um, uh, that's n- not to say that they were as bad as they could be but rather every part of who they are is touched by sin I think a helpful illustration is that you, you, you put some coloring in a beaker of water and every part of the Water is red, but you could always put more coloring in. It could become a more and more intense red, but the water is in every part touched by the redness. I think that's a helpful image. Sometimes uh, the phrase total depravity from the five points gives the impression that... uh, Calvinists think that everybody is as bad as they could possibly be. And of course, we don't think that at all. Um, So then physical death does follow as a part of the curse now. This is something new. Uh, the, the, The spiritual death was instantaneous upon their turning away from God. God imposes physical death on them now as a sign of spiritual death. And I think it's right to think of it this way uh, the most precious union that a creature ever experiences is the union between the creature and the Creator. That was for them life and health and joy and prosperity, and so to be separated from God is the most terrible separation imaginable. Well, what could be an analog to that separation, the horror of it, in human experience? And the answer is physical death, the separation of the soul and the body, to have the soul torn away from that perfect uh, creation that God had formed for the soul to flourish in union with and to have it torn away uh, is a terrible sign of that terrible separation uh, that took place when Adam and Eve sinned. Um, the, uh, and so the, uh, um, the text that uh, is so powerful Uh, in uh, the proof on uh, the end here, the last one, Romans 3, 10 to 19, uh, it, um, it just thunders over and over as it is written. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understands. There's none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together unprofitable. There's none that doeth good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is in their lips, under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. A grim... Assessment by the apostle, and uh, although that's Paul in Romans, he's citing passages from uh, the Old Testament, Um, the uh, and pulling them together in that uh, terrible litany. Um, Well, then, point three: uh, What's to become of all of this? What's the outcome? And. There we read, they being the root of all mankind, the guilt of this sin was imputed, and the same death in sin and corrupted nature conveyed uh, to all their posterity descending from them by ordinary generation. The outcome of the fall for all who follow after Adam and Eve is this sin. From the root to all the branches. Original sin is not the first sin in the garden. Sometimes people get that point mixed up. Original sin is not the first sin in the garden, but rather, original sin is our original sinful state at birth, as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve. Reinhold Niebuhr, uh, a great theologian of the 20th century. Um, the not an orthodox man by any stretch they imagine but a, a serious um, thinker uh, trying to in a way get back to orthodoxy um, set, made this remarkable statement the doctrine of original sin is the only empirically verifiable doctrine of the Christian faith <laughs> I think that's brilliant <laughs> and yeah, You know, you'd have you look around and say, where where do you see that this isn't true? That a human being has come into the world and done anything, but ended up being a, a powerful source of misery for somebody or another. Um, the, uh, so the first part is the guilt of the sin was imputed. That is, imputed is to count something. Uh, guilt was counted as ours. This is a judicial act of God in the doctrine of original sin. But then further, the penalty of death and the corruption to all by ordinary generation. Now, you, of course, know why that phrase appears. uh, Because uh, Christ uh, had to be born of a woman, had to be born under the law. uh, But... Uh, as he did not come into the world by ordinary generation, he did not uh, ever uh, have original sin as a part of his makeup and original sin, of course, is something alien to humankind um, the uh, and so it doesn't diminish his humidity at all um, now the uh, it's fair enough. Uh, Chad, in his commentary, makes a point here that um, although it says they being the root of all mankind, when we're talking about original sin, uh, the scripture makes Adam to have a particular role as the covenant head of the race. It's in Adam that all men die. And our uh, the, the Shorter Catechism m- makes that plain. And 16, did all mankind fall in Adam's first transgression? The answer, the covenant being made with Adam, not only for himself, but for all his posterity, all mankind descending from him by ordinary generation, sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. Uh, so it's that idea of the covenant head that is particularly important in the scripture and the uh, The confession here is a little too concise, Um, and especially since Paul is going to make such a big point of this in the two Adams in Romans, uh, that in Adam we all died, and in the second Adam, the Adam who's going to be a covenant head now for his people, and his Righteousness is going to be imputed to them just in the same way that Adam's sinfulness was imputed to them. Uh, and the, um, uh, he's going to bear this, the uh, covenant curse for his people that Adam failed to be capable of bearing, himself being subject to it. So that that dynamic is very important and we don't want to lose sight of that um, in the, the Scripture. And the, the standards uh, fully sustain that point of view. It's just that I think maybe Homer nodded just slightly in the opening of this third paragraph. Um, okay. Yes. Before we move on, uh, so the Catechism speaks of the first transgression. I had always equated that with original sin and but I heard you say no the original sin was not the first sin I think that's what you said but original sin means something else than first
1: sin would you repeat one more time yes. what original sin means and what it does not mean right
0: uh, original sin refers to the sin nature that is original to us when we come into the world original sin is a part of the curse on Adam and Eve, and all their posterity, that henceforth they shall have that Adamic nature uh, a rebel against God. Um, The first sin, well, in in a sense, it's first in our context. uh, If we're going to talk about first sin, we'd have to go back to the angelic realm and so on. um, So the, uh, the, the first sin is not original sin. It's the first sin, the first transgression, Adam's transgression, that brings about original sin uh, to his posterity. Does that? Yes, yes. I'll have to think about some more, but it is a yes. simple thing. All right. Any other? All right. uh, Four. Four. From this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, do precede all actual transgressions. So original sin means we come into the world with an original corruption. Uh, Edwards used to... Uh, 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 be, be people talk about how innocent and... Uh, babies are and so on he said you know we need to realize biblically they're little vipers they're going to grow up to be poisonous snakes <laughs> the, uh, uh, the, um, uh, John Gerstner once uh, was visiting pastor and uh, they came said uh, oh, we have a baptism we forgot to tell you would you mind uh, officiating at the baptismal rite and he said no I'd be, be perfectly happy and uh, the uh, and um, they said we have a, a, a tradition here that uh, we'd like to ha- have you uh, dip a white rose into the water to sprinkle the water on the child. And Dr. Gershon said, "Well, uh, I I can't see." Uh, any problem with using a flower, but tell me, what what does the white flower signify? And they said, oh, the innocence of the child. And he said to them, what does the washing with water signify? (laughs) And they said, well, we won't use the rose. (laughs) Oh, Oh, my goodness. Well, um... Where were we? Ah, so um, this paragraph focuses on our corruption, which is all the source of all actual sins. Now, you'll remember this was a crucial part of our uh, human sexuality study, that Rome takes it uh, that um, only uh, performances in the world are sin and inclinations to sin are not truly sinful. Reform teaches, the Bible teaches, that um, our disposition to sin is itself sinful, and out of that grow all uh, sins. Um, the uh, so, uh, the so um, Let me just back up a step and say, made opposite to all good, we're going to see uh, there that they're speaking in a shorthand that in a few minutes they're going to elaborate a little more on and we'll see. It's not strictly speaking all good, but rather it's all spiritual good. Uh, the natural goods in the world, they're not made opposite to. They they want to eat and drink and be merry and those are all goods. They, wanna, they largely love their children and... Uh, uh because of God's work and re- restraining evil and so on, uh, they can still be faithful farmers and lawyers and whatnot. So we want to add, add that caveat. Um, but the main point is it's just out of this original sin, this corrupt nature, flow actual sins. Um, this corrupt nature. Corruption of nature during this life doth remain in those that are regenerated although it be through Christ pardoned and mortified Both yet both in itself and the motions thereof are truly and properly sin uh, This again is going to be elaborated on a little more but we'll underline the point uh, When we're regenerated We've become uh, freed from the bondage of sin, but not from the influence of sin. Before we're regenerated, we are in complete bondage. Uh, it, when you're dead in trespass and sin, there is nothing that you can will or do that isn't sinful in some sense. You're in complete bondage to sin. Now that means the farming of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. They're doing something that's outwardly right but because of their wickedness they're sinning in it. They're doing it for their own good or for worldly achievement or some such thing as that. Um, but the uh, for the believer once he's brought to life in Christ, he's pardoned for that corruption of nature, that sin imputed uh, by Adam, and the bondage is broken. No longer are in everything that they do, are they sinning, but rather they have the capacity to uh, love what is good, but they also have the capacity to love what is evil, a remaining capacity that part of the life in this world is to be putting that to death um, so um, the, you, you can see the bondage part in the citation in footnote 8 in uh, Romans 8-7 the carnal mind is enmity against God that, that means is hatred against God it is not subject to the law of God neither indeed can it be it's in complete bondage. But then on the other hand, uh, the, um, the the wonder is that um, that we, we can, as newly brought to life, delight in the law of God after the inward man. That's Paul's language in Romans 7. We can really delight in that. But on the other hand, there's the warning. Uh 1 John 8 and 10 if we say that we have no sin we deceive ourselves the truth is not in us if we say we have not sinned we make him to be a liar and his word is not in us Um, so uh, but sixthly every sin both original that is the disposition from the beginning both original and actual that is the things that grow out of that, being transgression of the righteous law of God and contrary thereunto, doth in its own nature bring guilt upon the sinner, whereby he is bound over to the wrath of God and the curse of the law and made subject to death with all miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. Uh, That is a grim uh, business. And uh, the point is that this is put so robustly because this is an assault on Rome's doctrine, a doctrine that was completely corrupting with respect to sin in a distinction made between mortal and venial sins, a distinction that the Bible knows nothing of a special class of sins that are mortal as opposed to the run-of-the-mill sins that aren't unto death but can be uh, overcome by the sac- sacramental rites of the church. Um, th- this is a full-on assault on that distinction of mortal and venial sins. Um, the larger catechism is quite powerful here, and if you have that document uh, if anyone didn't, doesn't have that who's on now, if you want to do your hand raise or something, I'll put it on the screen if it needs to be, because I do want to make reference to the language. I think it will be easier for you to follow if you can see it. Does anybody need me to put that on the screen? All right, I'm not seeing anybody. Uh, we'll go first to question 152 in the larger catechism. What does every sin deserve? At the hands of God. And their answer is. Every sin. Even the least. Being against the sovereignty. Goodness and holiness of God. And against his righteous law. Deserves his wrath. And curse. Both in this life. And in that which is to come. And cannot be expiated. But by the blood of Christ. So there's the. This same point that we have in six of our chapter, every sin deserves uh wrath and curse now then the problem is uh some people take from this robust insistence that that means all sins are equal uh there's none more heinous than others, and that all sinners are equally counted as sinful when they sin. And that does not follow at all from this doctrine. But there are many, many believers, especially on the first point, because Jesus said if you've lusted after a woman in your heart, you have as much as committed adultery with her, and if you hate, you've murdered, and so on. And that leads them to say that all sins are equal. But that is robustly not the case. And I want you to see how powerfully uh, the confession of faith repudiates that point. You've seen how strong they are, that all sins deserve death. But, as I say, that doesn't imply that all sins are equal. Some are more heinous than others. Or that every sinner of a particular sin is equally sinful. There are aggravations and mitigations to sin. So, question 150. Are all transgressions of the law of God equally heinous in themselves and in the sight of God? And the answer is no. All transgressions of the law of God are not equally heinous. But some sins in themselves and by reason of their several, several aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. Then question 151 which I I think is an absolutely brilliant uh, exercise in moral philosophy. And the divines, I I think, just went off the charts here in the excellence of their uh, answer. Uh, 151, what are those aggravations that make some sins more heinous than others? The answer is sins receive their aggravations. In other words, they become worse than the the sin itself, uh, from the person's offending, if they be of right, riper age, greater experience or grace, eminent per, per professions, gifts and place, office, guides to others, and whose example are likely to be followed. So if, if you're a person of greater gifts and abilities to whom much is given, much is required, you, you doing the same sin as a person in the gutter it's way worse for you to do it. And I, I put all the texts in because I should at some point have the opportunity to meditate on these texts Uh, some of the largest (laughs) textual support that any part of the confession receives so there's one aggravation, what else? from the parties offended if immediately against God his attributes and worship against Christ and his grace the Holy Spirit, his witness and workings against superiors men of eminency Uh, of such as we stand especially related and engaged unto, uh, for any other saints, particularly weak brethren, the souls of them or any other, uh, and against uh, the common good of all or many. So here are further aggravations that make sins worse. Um, Then from the nature and quality of the offense, if it be against the express letter of the law, Break many commandments, contain it in, uh, in it many sins. If not only conceived in the heart, but breaks forth in words or actions. You see, there's the proper interpretation of what Jesus said. Um, scandalizes others, admits of no reparation. If it means mercies, judgments, the light of nature, conviction of conscience, public or po- private admonitions, censures of the church, civil punishments, and our prayers, purposes, promises, vows, covenants, and engagements to God or man, if it d- be done deliberately, willfully, presumptuously, impudently, boastfully, maliciously, frequently, obstinately, with delight, continuance, and relapsing after repentance. That makes it worse. And then uh, the grand finale, um, the, uh, uh, from the circumstances of time and place, if on the Lord's Day, if, or other times of divine worship, or immediately before or after those, or other helps to prevent or remedy such miscarriages, if in public or in the presence of others who are likely to be provoked or defiled. Well, uh, there, you see, see then There's a much more robust, nuanced understanding of the nature of sin, but it's grounded in the certainty that the sinfulness of sin, uh, in terms of its ultimate penalty, is because it's against God, and all sin deserves the punishment of death because it's against God. But from that point, nonetheless... A given sin can be worse in character than another, and a given sin uh, can, because of the circumstances of it, uh, be worse than another. Uh, and of course, on the other hand, mitigations is true that uh, sin, uh, a certain sin, might be less sinful uh, because of some peculiar circumstance. The person that the the person who steals a loaf of bread, whose family is starving, has done a different thing than. Augustine stealing the pears that he didn't even like. Uh, The one was wickedness for wickedness sake. The other was wickedness uh, trying to do some good. All right. Well, we almost made it. (laughs) We have only free will to do, and that's a light subject. We could probably knock that off in the next couple of minutes. All right, we're going to stop here tonight. It's 8.30, but we made great progress. I appreciate you all hanging in there. Um, the uh, But any concluding question or comment that you uh, might have about, yes, Bonnie or Bill or whoever's there? That's
1: me, Sponny. and my timer's going off, and I keep ignoring it. Um, <laughs> with reference to no sin being different than any other yes that those are really that i thank you so much for pointing that out that's just wonderful to hear and but the thing that i've always heard is that the reason that it is said that there are none is worse than another is the punishment is the same but is it the same that's my question
0: no, it's, it, 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 the, the, the there's a sense in which it's the same. It's the loss of God as your eternal good. Everybody suffers that, that remains in their sin. But God is a just judge. And those, uh, Jesus says plainly, uh, th- those who... Uh, have sinned more egregiously will be beaten with more stripes. Uh, He says to uh, Bethsaida and... uh, uh, um, I can't remember the other city. Uh, He says it's going to be worse for them than Sodom and Gomorrah on the Day of Judgment. Now here are two of the most... uh, (laughs) stellar examples of wicked cities in the whole of scripture. And Jesus is saying, it's going to be worse for you than in Bethsaida. Now they say, well, wait a minute. We're around the mill sinners maybe. We don't do anything particularly bad. He said, no, you've had the light of the presence of the Son of God and you're rejecting him. That's way more of itself uh, a crime. So um, so that, but that's the answer, Bonnie. The overall judgment is that all sin is mortal, it leads to eternal death. But in eternal death, there are clearly going to be uh, greater or lesser um, uh, experiences of the wrath of God.
1: I just have never thought about before, and every time I've heard it explained, it's been explained. The way I said, it. but this this is thank you, Dave. This just is really good um, food to chew on and think about and and yes, understand. I appreciate it.
0: Well, you'll you'll marvel at some of the scripture texts that are the divine sight. Yes.
1: And a quick question: uh, This should be easy for you. Uh, a lot of this sounds like a, kind of a survey of um, systematic theology, and I wonder if you have a favorite. Oh, a favorite. Uh, or collection? Yeah.
0: That's a hard question because um, I haven't lived long enough <laughs> uh, that um, I had the privilege when I was a young man uh, of reading Turritin's um That had never been translated from the Latin, but used as a systematic theology right up into the 20th century and formed Uh, seminaries in this country but everybody came knowing Latin Um, it had been translated in the early 20th century and the translation effectively lost Uh, the translator died his son died there were literally a stack of onion skinned papers this high four volumes translated in this beautiful handwriting by a man called Geiger who taught classics at Princeton and the grandson found these papers and said, Well, I guess we'll pitch them, but maybe I should go over to the library and ask if anybody would want them. The librarian almost had a heart attack. <laughs> and But they just sat there. Uh, Princeton would allow people to come use them. But uh, finally, uh, oh, 20 years ago now, maybe, um, Jim Dennison, my former pastor, um, uh, uh, had it published. He edited the whole thing and so that you now have one of the great systematics of all time but it's in very much Victorian prose and it's a little hard to read and it's a little dense but that is one of the greatest I think of for sure the Institutes of Atlantic Theology is the English term they've given for it. Um, in a, uh, one volume, bar none, my favorite is, uh, Robert Dabney's lectures in systematic theology. I think Dabney is the most astute theologian I've ever read. Um, Hodge's systematics is great. Um, I wish Hodge had written one volume and Dabney had written three, <laughs> but, but, uh, the, um, but then now there is, uh, has just come out again, the first systematic theology I ever read, and I, I delighted in, but I didn't know enough to know how good it was at the time. I, it's when I was at Brie. But Herman Bovink, you, you know, had four volumes of his, that's now just uh, a couple of years ago, finished being translated into English. It was never available to me when I was young. But he had a, a distillation of that theology, in a single volume called Our Reasonable Faith and that was the first I ever read in, uh, while I was at uh, La Brie and uh, uh, that has been uh, published but with a new title and I, I I've i almost made a rule that I'm not buying any more books and I, I had to violate that rule when they republished it um, here it is uh, it's the wonderful works of God and uh, it's Herman Bavink and it um, is a new translation and it's published by Westminster Seminary Press and this is really a wonderful book too. now I'm going too long and I'm ruining the question you wanted a, a simple volume an answer but <laughs> Anyway, those are some. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah. Any Anything else anybody wants to bring up this evening? Well, again, thank you very much uh, for participating, and I'll look forward to being with you again next week. Let's pray. Father, how grateful we are for the uh, extraordinary gift that such scholars, um, theologians, pastors that uh, we've been discussing have been to the church Uh, we thank you for the brilliance of the Westminster Divines their love for your word and the wonderful way they set it before us and we thank you for those who followed in that tradition and the gifts you gave them and the gifts that they provided for the church for Robert Dabney and Charles Hodge and for Herman Bovink for Calvin and for uh, Turretin uh, in the earlier ages. And we pray that we would count it um, an enormous blessing to have access more and more to these folk and that we would be nourished by it. And we ask it all for Christ's sake. Amen.